Hello folks. Last week we looked at what Merleau-Ponty had to say about the phantom limb, which offered insight into his broader strategy and phenomenology of perception. The phantom limb demonstrated how neither a solely psychological nor a solely physiological explanation are sufficient for explaining our lived embodiment. A coherent explanation of the phantom limb required a deeper ground for both physical and physiological facts. This ground was the body itself, viewed from its position as a being towards the world, which is to say, as a lived and habituated body rather than the body conceptually represented or empirically described. In Phenomenology of Perception, there are a number of pathological cases which Merleau-Ponty examines. The phantom limb is one of the most significant. Another one, which we will look at this week, is the case of psychic blindness, which we will look specifically at in the context of Merleau-Ponty's treatment of embodied sexuality. This lecture will begin with an account of what Merleau-Ponty has to say about space. It is important to grasp what Merleau-Ponty means by space, as that is important for understanding, for Merleau-Ponty at least, that the body is not a neutral and disinterested thing, but something projecting itself into, into space, into situations. Once we grasp what Merleau-Ponty means by space, then we can get a sense of how all situations operate. For example, we'll be able to understand Merleau-Ponty's distinction between objective space and corporeal space. This distinction is brought into relief by a particular case study Merleau-Ponty focuses on, that is, Schneider. Schneider's illness provides a very instructive account as to how humans relate to embodied space. In the second part of the lecture, I'll explain how Merleau-Ponty deploys the Schneider case to make explicit how an individual with brain injury came to have a, a restrictive subject-object relation to the world. This will in turn enable me in the final section to explain what Merleau-Ponty has to say about sexuality in general, erotic perception and their significance for our understanding of embodiment. Part 1. Objective space and corporeal space. The reason Merleau-Ponty turns to pathological conditions is because they illuminate how the locus of the human being is not the mind per se, but rather it is an ambiguous bodily being. Physiological and psychological conditions can certainly coincide, but this is because the body itself instantiates their union. Or conversely, the body could even very well be the instantiation of their dissolution. The main point, though, is that psyche and the physiological are, for Merleau-Ponty, theoretical abstractions abstracted out of our corporeal existence. Disentangling the theoretical from the concrete is one of the primary tasks of philosophy. Here Merleau-Ponty repeats Aristotle's distinction between theoria and phrenesis, or theoretical knowledge and practical knowledge, but with Merleau-Ponty pursuing the latter as primary rather than secondary. This is important for Merleau-Ponty because to understand things in a concrete, contextual and situational way, we need to avoid reifying and constructing abstract theoretical edifices. And instead, we need to follow Husserl by returning to the things themselves. But how do we talk about something like space without getting abstract? When Merleau-Ponty talks about the spatiality of body, he asks us to think of bodily space as distinct from objective space, or corporeal space as distinct from objective space. 
by objective space, Merleau-Ponty is really talking about space which objects come to occupy. That is where they are located or positioned. When we immediately intuit or sense something about the external world, we perceive it as a form of objective space. This is here, that is there. Objective space is how I encounter things, first and foremost as up and down, above and below, in front or behind each other. Putting the simplest terms possible, space is the way things are arranged in relation to each other. What is the end result, though, of this objectivity? What if we move back to another stage of abstraction, say, two-dimensional space? Merleau-Ponty argues that the objective determination of space as a pure externality of points is basically bidimensional or two-dimensional, not three-dimensional. So just length and breadth and not depth. However, as we saw, depth has existential significance for Merleau-Ponty. And this puts Merleau-Ponty at a distance from some of the key figures of the philosophical tradition. His recognition of space and depth overturns, for example, Bishop Berkeley's idea that depth is not real and ultimately is not even apprehensible. Or even Locke and Newton, who saw spaces existing independently of any sensible experience or measure. What Merleau-Ponty is driving at is the idea that objective conceptions of thought diminish our understanding of perception. Against this, however, Merleau-Ponty counterposes the existentially situated space of our corporeal experience. He argues that this existential space is the prior ontological ground of objective and Euclidean space, or geometrical space. This is to say that we cannot think of Euclidean space without first thinking of depth. This view puts Merleau-Ponty somewhat at odds with the philosophical tradition. Ordinarily, we would think that the mathematical abstraction is more real or more accurate than the concrete corporeal experience. How does such an emphasis work for Merleau-Ponty? First, he shows that the very terms in which we articulate spatial relations, such as above, below, are really not meaningful without embodied experience. The first important point that Merleau-Ponty makes is that like the being of the object, the being of the body is inseparable from its spatial givenness. For both Cartesian and Kantian philosophy, or what Merleau-Ponty otherwise calls intellectualism, the spatiality of an object is already bound up with his being. For Descartes, objectivity is basically defined by extension. For Kant, space is an a priori form of intuition, and that means that it is impossible for us to perceive picture or imagine any object which is not given spatially. The existence of an object follows from and is comprehended by the intrinsic and intelligible nature of space, therefore. For Merleau-Ponty, on the contrary, beginning phenomenologically from the existence of the body as it is given, we learn that, in Merleau-Ponty's words, space must be embedded in existence. That is, Space and a fortiori, the space of our bodies is grasped situationally, not positionally. If we were to think of space in a geometrical way, objective space is defined by three-dimensionality, so length, breadth, and height and position. If we were Cartesians, we might make this even more abstract by defining space on a two-dimensional plane simply as 
points which are in extrinsic relation to each other. The trouble with this, though, is that there is no difference. A distance of two centimetres between two points on a two-dimensional plane is utterly indifferent. Similarly, any given point is indistinguishable from any other. However, our bodies, as we well know, occupy three-dimensional space. Depth thus has existential and situational significance. Depth reveals to me that I too am a thing among other things. This still does sound pretty abstract, though. There is also the problem that if we adopt the theoretical or geometrical model, it will make it seem that the contingent fact of our bodily being in space is not primary and obscures the supposedly truer geometrical account of space. The opposite is true for Merleau Ponty. It is in fact the oriented space of our bodily being that has ontological priority. It is embodiment in space which makes space itself at all intelligible. If you think about it, notions like up, down, under, over, adjacent, besides and behind are meaningless without the experience of being embodied. In a two-dimensional geometrical sense, these notions are abstractly conceived and as such are utterly placeless, are utterly situationless. Once we get down to Merleau-Ponty's point is actually quite simple. The point is that only a being that can take up space is it at all possible for that being to be able to perceive space. Consequently, the perception or immediate experience of space is instantiated through relation. One cannot experience physical objects in isolation. There is a difference in place between up, down, left and right and front and behind and so on. To perceive space is to perceive things in space, things in relation to me and themselves. The point is that theoretical space is, in some sense, homogeneous, at least if we restrict our analysis to geometry. If then space is homogeneous, it necessarily must be undifferentiated. Our bodies, though, are not undifferentiated in relation to the spaces they inhabit. They are continually differentiating their relation to the world. Now, we might come up with all kinds of mathematical models which do just that, that is, which can model space, even hold the meaning of lived and oriented space. This, though, can only be the case because the meaning of the model is derived from existential fact. We take up space in an active and differentiating way. By active and differentiating, I mean movement itself. And certainly, though, we might say, objectively, there is no bodily space without an intuition of abstract and universal space. For Merleau-Ponty, this is not the case. As he says himself, and I quote, Far from my body's being for me, no more than a fragment of space. There would be no space at all for me if I had no body. But what happens when our perception of lived space breaks down? This is where Merleau-Ponty turns to one of the major case studies in the phenomenology of perception, that of psychic blindness. Part 2. Schneider and the Sexual Body To further enrich our understanding of both the spatial and motile body, Merleau-Ponty turns to the case of Schneider, an injured World War I veteran. Schneider was injured by shrapnel in the occipital low part of the brain. This is the part of the brain that has to do with visual processing and automatic motion. The reason Merleau-Ponty sees the case of Schneider as valuable is because he exhibited a 
peculiar type of psychic blindness. Specifically, Schneider's blindness towards sexual situations. The overall purpose of Merleau-Ponty's examination of this case is to help sharpen our understanding of how the body is primordially lived, situated before being positioned or even posited. The case study of psychic blindness of the World War I veteran Schneider, who was injured on the back of the head by a shell splinter, was conducted by a neuropsychologist, Ademir Gelb and Kurt Goldstein. Their findings showed Snyder was able to perform concrete movements, although he nevertheless had great difficulty in performing abstract movements. For example, Schneider was employed in factory work manufacturing leather wallets and could perform to a reasonable standard the practical task required for their production. However, when asked to point to a particular region of his body, say, say his nose, Schneider had found this to be very difficult, a great challenge. So having to undertake laborious preparatory movements of his whole body whilst simultaneously making explicit perceptions of the whereabouts of his limbs. Schneider's case goes straight to the heart of Merleau-Ponty's philosophy, as well as the discussion we had in the previous part about the distinction between objective space and lived corporeal space. The distinction between the abstract and the concrete, between the immediate practical tasks of everyday life, underlines the difference between the body as a means and the body as an end. Put in a Kantian register, Merleau-Ponty takes from Schneider's case the transcendental conditions for being an embodied being as such. Schneider's condition explains the difference between a being in itself and a being for itself. The for itself of embodiment is only intelligible as self-moving, or the body is intelligible only in a context of spatial relations. A patient that is unable to perform abstract movements no longer holds the capacity to organise, unify, and lend meaning to the world since they have lost the capacity for a symbolic or representative function. As Merleau-Ponty puts it himself, and I quote, If a being is consciousness, he must be nothing but a network of intentions. If he ceases to be definable in terms of the act of sense-giving, he relapses into the condition of a thing. Indeed, the continued existence of Schneider's concrete movements can only be analysed in terms of there being merely deeply conditioned motor reflexes as movements in themselves. While Schneider suffered from a variety of perceptual and motor defects due to the brain trauma he experienced during the First World War, one of the symptoms Merleau-Ponty focused particularly on was Schneider's inability to experience sexual feeling or arousal. Due to his occipital injury, Schneider could not be stimulated sexually by visual arousal. Pornographic images, for example, did not arouse him in any way. Schneider, though, could be aroused in a mechanical way, through direct touch. Schneider could be aroused, albeit not in a particularly sustained way. There was an essential detachment to Schneider's sexual activity. It was as if he had become split between his subjectivity and the objective world. According to Merleau-Ponty, what Schneider was lacking was a sense of the embodied situation. In sexual terms, his perception of sexuality was situationless. What this points to is that the erotic itself, or sexual being, is an embodied phenomena. While this might seem obvious, that is, it does not seem too profound to suggest that sex involves bodies, Merleau-Ponty is more interested in showing 
real eroticism requiring situational dispositionality. Schneider had lost the capacity to perceive a situation in an erotic fashion. What does this mean, though? For Schneider's perspective, it meant that sexuality was reduced to function. He just conceived of sexuality in a mechanical and even in an abstract way, as in, it was related to this sexual function in relation to that specific tactile arousal. Furthermore, Schneider did not find different potential sexual partners any more attractive than any other. He had lost the capacity, in other words, for lived embodied sexuality. So, beyond the incitement of sexual sensation and beyond any abstract psychological interpretation or representation of external sexual opportunities, Schneider, according to Merleau-Ponty, did not have sexual situatedness available to him. For example, he could go on a date and perceive the immediate sensations of the person he was on the date with, but would not perceive, say, something like flirtation or playful amorous intrigue. This was because an erotic situation is essentially flexible, requiring reciprocity, dialectic, or a back and forth. Schneider would have to resort to abstract psychological representations or experiential sensations to find the situation arousing. Erotic perception, then, is thus not purely a psychic or nor physical affair. Rather, erotic perception is embodied, actively adjusting to the encounter in and of itself. I suppose, rather tragically for Schneider, the world became purely theoretical, conceived only as effectively disinterested and neutral. Schneider does perceive what is going on in a very basic sense, but it has no effective horizon in terms of, say, possibility or sexual history. Put bluntly, the world ceased to speak to him in an erotic way. Part 3. Existential Sexuality Merleau-Ponty's account of sexuality does place him in contact with Freudian psychoanalysis. While Merleau-Ponty does agree with Freud on some issues, he does draw some rather different implications. Where he does agree with Freud is on the idea that sexuality is not, as he puts it, an autonomous cycle. What is important about Freud was his discovery of sexuality as a form of relations, dispositions and attitudes which had previously been held to reside in consciousness. Additionally, Merleau-Ponty thought that Freud was right to suggest that sex is not something that could be only understood in terms of one's genitalia. The upshot of psychoanalysis for Merleau-Ponty was that it does not make sexual psychology merely biological or the byproduct of sets of instincts. Rather, psychoanalysis is valuable where it seeks to infuse existence with the question of sexuality. As embodied beings, we are sexual beings and this needs to be acknowledged. If we do not, we are at risk of carrying out a grossly inaccurate self-interpretation of ourselves. So, with Freud, Merleau-Ponty understands our embodied sexuality as fundamental to our being towards the world. In Merleau-Ponty's words, and I quote, sexuality therefore ought not any more than the body in general to be regarded as a fortuitous content of our experience. Existence has no fortuitous attributes, no content which does not contribute towards give it its form. While Freud showed that our unconscious sexuality via repression was of huge existential significance, Merleau-Ponty really takes this insight in different directions. In Merleau-Ponty, the unconscious is the anti-predicative. Our sexuality is thought of in an existential sense, in a sense of deep subjectivity, if you like. 
entwined with the intentionality of the body and our habituated historical existence and narratives. The difference between Freud and Merleau-Ponty, I think, resides in the fact that for Freud, sexuality was pathological in some sense, at least minimally. For Merleau-Ponty, our sexuality, even our sexual history, is vital and necessary part of our lives because it is a projection of our being towards the world. It is perhaps a question of emphasis. While Freud thought we only are our sexuality or that existence could be reduced to sexuality, Merleau-Ponty sees it as a fundamental expression of our active embodied existence. Sexuality belongs to our sphere of lived signification. Phenomenologically, the erotic situation itself is only intelligible where it is charged with meaning and intention. As long as we discern meaning and intention are not the distinct possession or product of our consciousness alone. It is quite a radical thought that Merleau-Ponty is developing here. In Descartes, for example, sexuality would need to be restricted to our secondary animal life. In contrast, Merleau-Ponty is suggesting that what counts as normal sexuality is in fact not at all that normal. One sexuality is only meaningful because of its contingency, because of its worldly adaptability, and because it is essentially always in question. This contingency of the world as it occurs, its situation, was precisely what was not available to Schneider. As Merleau-Ponty suggests, normal sexuality is always, and I quote, a mute and permanent question. In a purely philosophical sense, what Schneider's case has shown to Merleau-Ponty is that psychic blindness is only explicable in terms of the loss of the middle term of body intentionality. In terms of rationalism or empiricism, Schneider can no longer perform abstract movements, does not have the ability to organise, since the unity of the body or grasp the meaning of the world. The enduring existence of Schneider's basic and concrete movements cannot be explained in purely rationalist or empirical terms. There, they can only be analysed as deeply conditioned motor reflexes, as movements in themselves. Psychic and physiological approaches cannot explain the fact for example, that Schneider can smack his limb when bitten by a mosquito but could not point to the same spot when a doctor presses a ruler against it. The overall claim is that if we conceive the psyche as independent of the body or the body as simply an object in the world just like any other, then we are on very shaky ground. It is quite clear Schneider does not lack motility nor thought. His case, though, does expose the limitations of rationalist and empiricist approaches to understanding the human being. In fact, they miss out on the very human being side of the equation. Merleau-Ponty thus leads us to a recognition of a middle ground between, and I quote, movement as a third-person process and thought as a representation of movement. What Schneider lacks is the capacity for corporeal projection, or to use Merleau-Ponty's important phrase, motor intentionality. This intentionality is an intentionality of the act and not of a consciousness, as in the phenomenology of Husserl. And to quote Merleau-Ponty again, as has often been said, it is the body which catches and comprehends movement. The cultivation of habit is indeed the grasping of a significance, but it is the motor grasping of a motor significance. Schneider therefore lacks motor embodiment. It is the body then actively understanding itself in movement, space and habituation, which has the most important philosophical significance. The body understands significance and meaning. 
not as derived from a constituting consciousness, but of a cognitive corporeality. Our lived corporeality is neither a simple coordination of pre-existent data from the individual sense organs, nor is it subsumed under a law in the imminence of a for itself. It is a nexus of living meanings, a living synthesis, which arises in the action itself. If I reach over to put a tea bag in a cup, I do not make a comparison of representations of the position of my arm to my body in relation to the cup, nor do I act in accordance with the positional intentions of a consciousness that would have the objects within the world, including the body, explicitly laid out before it. As Merleau-Ponty writes, and I quote again, consciousness is in the first place not a matter of I think, but of I can. To act is not to know, and indeed, as any self-respecting philosopher will tell you, nothing is more difficult to grasp than exactly what I am doing. Merleau-Ponty has then reappropriated behaviour in the body as the original site of human agency. In conclusion, for Merleau-Ponty, Schneider's case provides clear evidence as how the body fundamentally relates to space. Schneider's illness stems from an inherent split in his subjectivity. In a way, looking at the case now from a distance, Schneider presents a parody of the subject-object distinction. And overcoming this distinction lies at the core of our capacity to understand the human being, for Merleau-Ponty, indeed, as a being in the world. Schneider does not have the unity of a gestalt body image. It is only when we project our embodied being into the world that we can see that objects take on meaning and significance, and not as objects in themselves. As with Schneider's sexual dysfunctionality, we need to understand the human being in excess of our psychic content, or as an object among others. This understanding requires us to account for an intentional arc, the intentional arc is the unity of the sense, desires, intelligence, spatial sensibility and motility. In addition, the intentional arc incorporates the sedimented traits, habits and dispositions acquired from simply existing in the human milieu. Here, the intentional arc could be extended to include sexual, political, relational, ideological or moral situations. Schneider's intentional arc was deflated, and thereby he had no ability to inhabit, retain, or project his motor intentionality into and with the world itself. The way of being of the embodied subject, the how it is in its existence, structures its being, so one will find that what one says about one aspect of the human being is echoed in another aspect, all of which are given an existential totality, all of which hold a common meaning or a common style of being since the body is less like an object and more like a work of art. And here we perhaps can see Nietzsche's influence on how Merleau-Ponty constructs his notion of the body. Just as the artwork teaches us how to perceive it by perceiving it, the body teaches us what is life by living with it. By attending to the immediacy of the phenomenological givenness of the body, it is not that one arrives at an idea or schema of the, the body piecemeal, experientially or bit by bit, my awareness of my body's position is not one that I accumulate or derive in an additive or subtractive way. Rather, my body image is totality. I know the whereabouts of my legs without looking, and certainly do not have to explicitly coordinate my limbs like Schneider in order to move towards a certain goal. The importance of Schneider is that his diminished capacity for bodily projection reveals the absence of a power to perceive oneself situationally. That power is the source of all meaning for Merleau-Ponty. It is embodied power. It is even why we are free.